Hello, this is Examiner Radio, the weekly radio show and podcast that covers news, politics, and all things Halifax. I'm Tim Bousquet, editor of the Halifax Examiner, which is available online at halifaxexaminer.ca. Also in the studio is Russell Gregg, Examiner Radio producer. Hey! How are you, Tim? Very good. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, be- beautiful out there. Uh, just stopped snowing. Yeah. Like two minutes ago. <laughs> we are recording this on Thursday, so it could be cold and dry on Friday when everybody's hearing this. But. Or it could be tropical. <laughs> Cross your fingers. Right, okay. This is uh, episode number 92 of Examiner Radio. And as always, you can listen to the show on CKDU 88.1 FM on your radio in Halifax on Fridays at 4.30 p.m. or on your computer via the CKDU website, which is www.ckdu.ca. And you can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, uh, TuneIn.com, Podcast.com, or any other um, platform that uh, that is a podcast aggregate, and uh, have it automatically delivered to your device of choice, your your phone, your uh, tablet, your toaster. And uh, to find it, just type Halifax Examiner in the search engine, and uh, it'll be the first result. Today, we'll speak with Ryan Delahanty who is a, uh, works in the accessibility field, and we will be discussing legislation at the provincial level, but also uh, where things stand on the federal and municipal level with, with accessibility issues. First up, though, let's do the Week in Review. Okay. Uh, first up, a, a shout-out to Graham Steele, who was our guest last week. Last week's episode was the most downloaded episode of Examiner Radio ever. And damn, if I had known that, I would have put in a plug for subscriptions. <laughs> so I think we, we, we need to get him on, on a semi-regular basis. We can't pay him as much as, uh, as CBC is he'll to have a, pundit, but He'll have a whole cabinet full of Halifax Examiner <laughs> coffee mugs. Uh, also, uh, uh, apologies to Graham Steele's mom for the uh, potty language uh, on last week's episode. I, I think she was uh, uh, a little irked at that. But uh, as a follow up to last week's episode, which was all about the labor dispute between the teachers union and the government. Uh, This past Wednesday, the provincial government asked the NSTU to head back to the bargaining table and uh, the union agreed shortly after. Yep. They said, sure. Uh, The Stephen McNeil, the premier, sent a letter the day before to the education minister saying, uh, let's get a, a conciliator in here. So that's uh, uh, at least a motion of a step forward. We'll see where it goes. Um, and just just to uh, verify, a, a conciliator is not an arbitrator. No. Those are two very different roles. Right, right. Okay. Just someone that can help the two sides speak <laughs> as opposed to making any sort of decisions for anyone. Okay. But um, I think <laughs> that's obviously necessary for these tucks to go anywhere if they'll go anywhere. Mm-hmm. I'm, 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 I guess time will tell. Uh, I doubt we'll see anything in the in the next, you know, before Christmas. Before the Christmas yeah. break, yeah. yeah. Uh, the McNeil government's popularity uh, has taken a huge hit in the polls. Uh, an Angus <sighs> Reid poll was released earlier this week, and uh, his personal rating has dropped 15 percentage points since this time last year, and seven of those percentage points in the last three months alone. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's pretty wide uh, margin of 
of error there. So yeah, of course, it, plus it could, minus two percent. That's right. nationally, locally, oh, okay, it's okay. just seven. It's seven percent. So oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so yeah, grain of salt. Uh, I, you know, it could be twice as much or nothing at all. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I bet the McNeil government is, or the Liberal Party is doing some internal polling um, that has pretty exacting numbers, and they know exactly where things stand. Right. It certainly seems like, after last week's fiasco over locking students out of their own classrooms, that the average Nova Scotian is now more firmly on the side of the teachers. Like, they definitely seem to have public support more than well, they more definitely, so than they did two weeks ago. They definitely won a PR battle with yeah. the with the uh, government screw up on closing the schools. You know, it's really hard to measure these things. It's, it's sort of a sense on the street and the the polls, you know, as we've learned, <laughs> the polls can be horribly wrong. Yeah. So I I never like to uh pay too much attention to those. I mean the only poll this, that really matters is election day. I don't know. I, I think we overemphasize or, or find too important poll results uh, when really we should just be doing what we do or n- not do because it's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. I, I don't know. Yeah, no, fair enough. Uh, so do you, do you think that with everything that's gone down, uh, the government might be more conciliatory when they come to the bargaining table? Or do you think that McNeil's drive for you know the balanced budget at all costs will i think they'll find some more flexibility i mean what do i know right Mm -hmm. you know but uh maybe they'll start saying well they'll start switching out uh money that they have pledged to classroom development or whatever and, and put it in the wages and whether um teachers find that appropriate or not uh remains to be seen I really think if they just kind of cut back on the data collection, they could get more buy-in from teachers, but, mm-hmm. but I don't know. You know. The teachers have made it clear that, you know, while salaries, wages are important, it is by far not the, you know, the, the top issue. You know, they're looking at, at, yeah. at job conditions. Uh, next up is a uh, proposed contract being offered to the Nova Scotia Government and General Employees Union, or yeah. NSGEU. Uh, this union represents, I think, approximately 7,600 public sector workers across the province. They represent a lot more than that, but the the, the number is around 7,000 mm-hmm. or so that uh, voted on this contract because they're directly related to that. And... Uh, uh, same day as the teachers uh, issue kind of moved forward, uh, they soundly rejected mm-hmm. the government's offer, 94% no vote. Um, I guess it was a yes vote because it was a vote to to uh, reject. reject yeah. But, yeah. And it was basically almost the same contract uh, that was being offered the teachers. So wage freeze for three years, uh, very, very minor incremental increases right. over the last two years of the contract. Um uh, reduction in the, um, what's the, the term, the, the, the service award, the longstanding. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, if the teachers aren't going to accept it. Well, the teachers kind of, kind of changed everything. The, the, uh, the NSGU's executive had recommended approval of this contract, uh, had recommended approval of it way back, you know, last year or earlier, much earlier this year. And the teachers, out of the blue, rejected their contract, and all of a sudden the NSGU kind of backed up a bit and said, oh, we're not going to put this up for a vote, and they delayed it until December after the teachers had, had uh, again rejected mm-hmm. their 
their contract. So um, the teachers kind of led the led the way with this, and the other unions have been finding their uh, backbone as a result of that. Right. Uh, NSGEU President Jason McLean uh, said on Thursday that essentially, and I'm paraphrasing, that the McNeil government's plan to balance the budget at all costs was based on clawbacks to the public sector workers. Uh, yeah, sure. So, and it was, it was funny to, to, I mean, not funny, but it was interesting to hear that quote and then see the press conference from Finance Minister Randy DeLore, who was talking about how the projected sur- uh, surplus this year has, has been not wiped out, but certainly dramatically reduced, owing in, in significant part to a lack of revenue, projected revenue from the convention center. Oh, did did he? I missed that part. I've I've been uh, running around all day, so I haven't. I I I didn't actually hear the press conference, but I did hear the uh, or someone sent me an email. It said he had said it would be unfair to pass labor costs connected to services onto taxpayers, which is just a boneheaded, stupid thing to say, (laughs) Uh, especially right before you go into negotiations with the union. Who the the hell else is going to pay for labor costs if it's not the taxpayers? Um, So, no, tell me about this this, uh, convention center thing. Okay, Okay, we we had to stop recording there so that I could go read this article. (laughs) This is a Canadian press article that that came out... uh, uh, Today, yeah. today on Thursday, so, so readers or listeners are hearing this one day after this article, and oh boy, um, the province says this is a they don't uh, name the reporter. So the province says the slight reduction in revenues is due to a seventy-two point nine million dollar decrease in revenues due to a delay in construction of the Halifax Convention Center and lower tax revenues. They don't break that apart, do no, they? No, they don't. I think I have some calls to make. <laughs> uh, wow. Although it does say in the, in the next paragraph, it does say forecasted tax revenues are down $45.5 million due to a reduction in the amount of uh, personal income tax, fuel tax, and HST collected. So if you subtract 72.9, million, $27.2 million is what I get, huh? I don't, I don't know if that's accurate or not, but, uh, yeah. Um, no way in hell. Uh, even if the thing was open, I, 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 I'm flabbergasted. This is, this is, uh, this is a gotcha moment on Examiner Radio. Uh, I, I, I wish I could, uh, show all the listeners a photo of Tim's face. He's apoplectic right now. Well, you know, this thing, yeah. Where to start? Uh, of course, the damn thing isn't open, right? It's supposed to be open two two years ago now, yeah. and uh, yeah. So of course the conventions aren't coming, but they would never. I mean, two have been canceled that I'm aware of. The rest have just been shifted over to the old convention center. So it's hard for me to believe that these two conventions were going to generate twenty five million dollars in tax revenue and. Maybe they're talking construction. I don't. I don't know who. Who the hell knows what they're talking about? Um, this. This is a ridiculous statement. Blaming the convention center. Uh, you know, on the one hand, it it, it just goes to show you that uh, the projections for this thing were insane. But uh, now I guess we're going to to hang every 
every problem every government faces on this. So, you know, yeah, poverty is up. Well, the convention center's not open. Uh, you know, the, the minister of such and such said something stupid. Well, the convention center's not open. <laughs> um, God. Anyway. Carry on. I don't even know where to go <laughs> with that, but uh, uh, we're going to be talking a lot more about uh, about poverty and wages on next week's uh, episode of Examiner Radio. So I think we'll have a lot more uh, uh, to talk about. Let's uh, shift gears just a little bit. A uh, couple of other interesting stories this week. Uh, the Feds announced that uh, they're honoring Viola Desmond on the ten dollar bill. Uh, I think it's I think it's great that they're recognizing the civil rights pioneer. And I really hope that it, it means her story will become better known across the country. Sure. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I've lived here for 10 years. Before I moved to Nova Scotia, I had never heard of Viola Desmond. He was not taught in in school. Well, um, you know, I, I knew I knew about Africville before I moved out here, but I'd never heard the name Viola Desmond. And so. you grew up in Edmonton. I grew up in Alberta, yeah. 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 Uh, so, you know, I think that's great. Uh, I think it's kind of, I still think it's unfortunate that her home province couldn't get its act together and just name the February holiday after her. Yeah. And just give her, you know, I, I still think the rotating yeah, yeah. honorary. I, I'm with you there. I, I do think, um, you know, as L. Jones pointed out in the examiner last week, uh, there are lots and lots of people who have worked for human rights and so forth and it seems like Viola Desmond nothing take nothing against her whatsoever but she has become like that that one oh well we've done this mm, <laughs> so mm-hmm. so now we don't have to do you know whatever right um but still it's it it's a it, it it's a it's a nice gesture and and much appreciated in the black community and and human, pe- among people who are concerned about human rights so mm-hmm. so good there you go. Uh, in other news, former Halifax Mayor Peter Kelly has had his probationary period extended as the CAO in Charlottetown. It was initially supposed to be six months and has been extended another six months. Yeah, it was a, an unnamed reporter for Transcon, and I, I have no idea where this was first reported. Um, it wasn't in the Charlottetown Guardian, so far as I'm aware, but it showed up in a in a Metro paper, and mm-hmm. I don't know, it just confused me. But yeah, uh, they quoted uh, an unnamed uh, um, Charlottetown city councilor who broke the news that this had been extended six months. In the in the meantime, the Albertan government has started a municipal review of Westlock County, uh, which is out by Edmonton, mm-hmm. and uh, that's where Peter Kelly was CAO, and a bunch of money kind of was spent that shouldn't have been spent, and a bunch of documents have disappeared, and I think you have a quote from a councillor there, right? I, uh, it's actually the uh, the current county reeve, uh, who, which is sort of the equivalent Ma- to mayor, mayor of the county. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he's, he's new. Uh, he was not uh, the reeve when Kelly was in there, um, but he's quoted as saying, uh, Peter was the instigator of it. All of us are still in the dark. We have no idea what went on there. Peter had a month there, and apparently he shredded a lot of paper. Yeah. And now, uh, I mean, they're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars that he did not have the authority to spend that uh, have gone into a development and, and, there. And, and allegedly he was uh, negotiating for the county after he was no longer employed. Correct, uh, correct. So I guess we'll we'll find out about this, but uh, the review is supposed to take nine months. Yeah. So, um, you know, by that time, we'll have a scandal in Charlottetown. 
look, let's take a break here on Examiner Radio. When we come back, we will speak to Ryan Delahanty, uh, an assignment editor at Accessible Media Incorporated, about uh, the, the, the roadblocks to uh, provincial accessibility legislation and, uh, and a whole bunch of other things. You're listening to Examiner Radio. I'm joined in the studio today by Ryan Delahanty. Hi, Ryan. Hey. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. It's uh, snowy, um, which probably uh, presents some problems, but uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, you are the assignment editor for the Atlantic region for uh, accessible media. Correct. That's a mouthful. Uh, you are an observer of all things accessibility, and uh, you kind of came on our radar screen when this um, Provincial Accessibility Act was kind of making its way forward in the legislature. So we started talking about that. Maybe we should just dive in there. Tell, yeah. us, tell us about that. Sure. So the there had been a bit of a backlash towards the long-awaited provincial legisla- legislation on uh, accessibility. And so they had been trying to do public consultations to bring in the various disability communities in the region to give input to make sure that they're on the right track, that all of the important issues are being addressed, and that it, the process allows for public input. And it maybe, was, maybe I should just back up. Sure. It's uh, 2016. Yes. And Nova Scotia does not have an Accessibility Act? There are acts in Ontario and Manitoba. Uh, British Columbia is aiming to be the most accessible province in the country by 2024, so they're on the path right now. But Nova Scotia does not, nor do any other provinces, nor oh, do we have one nationally. That's, that's remarkable. Yes. Anyway, so so this is something you were telling me before we came on air, uh, initiated under the NDP government? I recall there being a lot of talk about their roadmap to accessibility legislation. Um, it never really materialized, I think, when the liberals took over. There was a lot of hope that that uh, momentum would carry forward. And so now a few years in, it was finally being presented to the public. Um, There were a lot of concerns aired about it, about a lack of input, a lack of uh, ability to be included in the process where a lot of people need to book their Accessibus transport a week in advance. And if there's two days notice, if it's not advertised very widely, um, the 
process wasn't really welcoming for people, nor were was the legislation itself available in accessible format. So people would want it in Braille, in large print, in a digital format that's compatible with a screen reader, or in plain language. And uh, none of that was available when the bill was first being brought forward. I think it was before the uh, Amendment Standing Committee, I think, and which point there was the public outcry and it was sort of put on pause kind of went back to the drawing board and they were I still thought not very not very publicized there were yeah. a couple info sessions and they were seeking public input on what they were about to put into uh, Okay uh, well what what's the overall here what's what's the end game what what are we trying to achieve and this is something that I've heard. I talked to a friend about this who was a lawyer for the province. And this is what I've heard is actually a little bit uh, ahead of what Ontario has, where they weren't very clear establishing and defining what they're setting out to achieve, but they did get to the regulation part of it. Um, so here it is recognizing that, you know, Canada has ratified the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, yet in the six years since we ratified that and agreed to be beholden to it, we haven't actually tried to enact it or create our own regulations. And so it's really just that to eliminate barriers faced by persons with all variety of disabilities to be fully engaged in public life, participate, to work where they want to work, to have access to restaurants and businesses, homes and, um, you know, employment. Besides just simple decency, it strikes me that as Nova Scotia ages, as the population ages, uh, older people tend to have a higher number of disabilities or a higher percentage of people uh, with disabilities than, than younger age groups. And it seems like the political push would be there to make this happen. That is acknowledged in the act, uh, whereas the number of Nova Scotians with disabilities is likely to rise due to the demographic changes associated with an aging population. So certainly it is looking at, um, you know, it's already, I think, at sort of critical mass where it's needed, but it will only more so, be more so as we uh, move so, forward. So you're generally um, supportive of, of the liberal government's uh, efforts in this regard. We're, we're getting there. It needs to be done. I think my concerns were... I think it's all about the uh, the people that are put into the key positions in this process to make sure that the the critical work is done. Right now, they're just sort of setting the table to allow us to create regulations that can be enforced. So, so this is a, a, a bureaucratic effort. We, we it, we're not getting any laws out of this. We're just getting here's a bureaucratic structure with a substructure with a substructure and a process. Basically, it's establishing the process, the the bodies that will oversee that process. And that's where I think a lot of the public disappointment came in is where people are so eager for the legislation for these rules to be enacted that none of that is in this legislation as of yet. That will be come later once this is all in place. Now, again, as we were talking before, you said that in the process of developing this legislation, the, the actual, you know, wheels on the ground, if you would, um, that uh, there will have to be an economic impact assessment. Tell me about that. So that is something that definitely has been highlighted as a, a big source of concern, that basically there will be a standard development committee on an ad hoc type of basis struck for each regulation that is deemed necessary or worth looking into. And along when they put forward that accessibility standard that they would like to have implemented, they need to include an economic impact assessment. Also, the parties, the businesses that would be affected by said accessibility standard are part of the development committee to create the standard. See, that, that just sounds like a roadblock to me. Uh, you know, I, you can 
chop and dice and and view economic impact from any number of perspectives. Uh, one economic impact is that people who uh, otherwise can't go out and buy stuff uh, now have a, the ability to do it if they can get into places and buy it and if they have a job where they can earn money and spend it. But this sounds like it's, oh, wait a minute, you're going to make me take those steps out. It's going to cost me $10,000. Exactly that. And it's all about the timeliness. So the accessibility standard must include that impact assessment, how the standard will improve accessibility, and a timeline that takes into account the resources required to comply. So it might be phased in over a 10, 20 year process, potentially. There aren't really hard and clear timelines on these regulations, as well as the, um, the desired composition of the standards committee. So my fear was that you could have 12 people with conflicting interests on the standards development committee and it may not be effective you know you, you've been watching this from a, for a long time you've been following these accessibility issues i come from the united states and in the 1980s under the reagan administration the federal government passed what's called the americans with disabilities act which so far as i can determine is light years beyond even now anything that's happening in, in Canada. Am I right on that? Absolutely, yes. I mean, there, there simply is no excuse in the United States uh, for n- not being accessible. I mean, uh, stuff is grandfathered in, sure, but you cannot open a new business. You can't, y- you know, embark on anything now w- without uh, meeting accessibility standards. They were settling on a taxi design for New York City and I think they were looking at maybe 1% or 2% of the fleet being accessible. They were sued under the ADA, and they ended up settling on an arrangement where I think within the next few years, 50% of the fleet has to be accessible taxis. I think it's 100% in London in the UK. So, that, so that's federal legislation with, with teeth mm-hmm. um, and that people can employ to, to make their cities and, and lives more accessible. Are we ever going to get to such a point here in Canada? There's rumblings. So the federal government, the uh, federal liberals, have been holding a uh, series of public consultations on really the beginnings, the uh, sort of the seeds of what will be hopefully an accessibility legislation on a national level. So that is uh, Carla Qualtro, who is the Minister of Sport and Persons with Uh Disabilities. Um, She herself having a disability. Um, So it's something where people are pretty optimistic that there is the appetite to do something. This it's the very early stages. So the day after the provincial legislation info session that I attended was this sort of a public consultation, getting input from the public in terms of what they think the the key priorities should be when a federal accessibility legislation comes into effect. So there was a uh, very strong showing from local people who are deaf and hard of hearing. Um, you know, some of the uh, the issues that they're really passionate about bringing forward that would need to be addressed on a national level. Um, a lot of it comes down to banking um, in terms of... Well, that's interesting. How does that work? The big issue right now that they're facing in terms of banking is that if they're trying to talk to somebody on the phone to get service on their accounts, they're using a video relay service. Yeah. And so they have a third person who's basically an interpreter speaking on their behalf. So they may be signing through a video chat with their interpreter who is then speaking on the phone to their banking representative. And most banks will shut that down immediately because they consider there's a third party on the call and they're not willing to talk to somebody if somebody else is present on that phone call, even though that person's really just a conduit for the the customer. 
And so that's been a huge frustration that often they're not able to get any sort of service over the phone to discuss their banking affairs, their finances right. with their uh, their bank. And, you know, a couple people are complaining about just trying to talk about insurance or a mortgage in a very general sense, not even the specifics of their account and being refused service by, you know, the major banks in Canada. Yeah. So there's definitely telecommunications, banking. There's a lot of concerns with that. Um, there's also in terms a lot of concern really expressed in regards to representation, media, arts and culture funding, making sure that people with disabilities are really contributing to our cultural landscape, um, yeah. aren't um, just sort of in stereotypical marginalized roles, but are you know really getting their voices out there just like yeah. everybody else. Let me just jump in and tell people if they're tuning in now, I'm, I'm speaking with Ryan Delahanty about accessibility issues um, on all levels of government. Uh, we haven't yet reached the municipal level, but uh, we'll get there in just a sec. I wonder if you've observed, you spoke of the Minister of Sport and people's, tell me what it is, people's with disabilities? Is uh, that the, the Honorable, Honorable Carla Qualtro, Minister of Sport and Persons with Disabilities. Okay, and the uh, Speaker of the House here in Nova Scotia also uses a wheelchair do having people in those positions is does that help this kind of legislation move forward? It does. It I think they're more connected to the communities and having that. Uh, you know, I've, we did an interview with uh, Kevin Murphy on one of our programs yeah. with uh, Craig Oliver recently, and he'd really been put in the position having to self advocate, and that's what I hear a lot. People get discouraged. It's disheartening when you feel like. You're fighting these battles and it's just for you. And you may not realize if you're in a small community, all the people that come after you that benefit from having you having fought that battle and not even somebody who may you know use a wheelchair as Kevin does, but um, people who have a baby stroller or, um, right, right, right. you know, a walker or anything else, you know, that or universal design. Having their hands full. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's interesting. Uh, I'll use that as a segue to municipal issues. My, you know, I, I do not have a disability, um, but. Something I often run into in the, just in the course of my work is using the uh, uh, city's website and still lots and lots of reports and agenda items and those sort of things are put on the website and are not readable by a, a PDF reader. Mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're documents that are just scanned in, you know, and a JPEG basically is put on the website. And, um, you know, people with visual disabilities use basically enhance PDFs uh, readers to to uh, be able to read the internet. Um, and I'd say half the city's website is not accessible to them. Absolutely. Those sorts of PDFs, any sort of an image. And there are things that can be done quite easily in terms of alt text. So if you have a report, you know, perhaps the text is readable. If you can highlight, copy and paste it, it's probably compatible with a screen reader. But when you get to graphics and charts, um, sometimes just superfluous illustrations, if you're using a screen reader and it is not compatible with those sorts of graphics and charts, you might be missing a lot of critical information to understand the issue, or you might think it's critical information, but it's completely superfluous. It's just a graphic, an illustration, uh, uh, you know, something clever, a far side cartoon, who knows what people throw onto these things. So you can tag it and actually give the contents in the um, description, in the description yeah. or yeah. just say null and they know that it's irrelevant and they don't need to concern themselves with it. They're not missing anything important. Yeah, I, I have been trying to do that sort of thing on my own website. Uh, of course, it's time-consuming, mm -hmm. uh, but it's interesting to me that uh, the the city's reports—they're not even—they don't even put the text in. They put a photo of the text in, 
which is, uh, you know, zero uh, value to someone with a visual disability. And exactly. And I mean, there's the other benefits where if they were putting it in in a more accessible format, then it would be so much easier for that information to be redistributed. And Google searched and, and all the rest. So indexed, here, yeah. here's a, a, an example of, of just making, just being aware of the accessibility issues that makes it better for people even who do not have uh, disabilities. Absolutely. Yeah. You've been attending the Accessibility Committee at City Hall. Yes, the Halifax Accessibility Advisory Committee. They usually meet, I think, the third Monday of every month. So I've been going for a few years, pretty much every meeting. And how's, how are they progressing? Good. I, I see a lot of important work being done. It very much gets into the nuts and bolts of things. So handling public complaints, passing those along to the appropriate department, you know, brainstorming action that may be taken. There was a gentleman that works on Spring Garden Road who has a, uh, I think, a, a winch and a lift in the back of his truck to uh, hoist his wheelchair in and out. And the only accessible parking spot nearby has a two-hour limit. And so uh-huh. he wants to work in the office all day. He's got to get out, load himself back into the vehicle, move it a few feet, um, drive around the block. If he goes to a meeting, that spot might be full again. And so they're looking at alternatives. The nearby parking garages he was interested in using, their ceilings were too low to accommodate that lift. So they were looking at getting him an exemption if anything could be done to give him a parking yeah, pass yeah. and exempt him from that time some, limit. Some flexibility. Yeah. So, I mean, they get into a lot of the individual issues, a lot of the public facilities, um, a good representation from the different business units of the city, from a couple counselors, um, from people that are activists in the disability communities locally, and then uh, the uh, city staff. So, uh, so I think people from, the, uh, people from the Disabled Persons Commissions would belong to it, from Halifax Transit, from public recreation yeah. department and yeah. they used to have a police representative but when he retired i can't recall his name yeah. um nobody else uh, replaced him on the all committee. the buses now are accessible uh low floor uh but the bus stops are not right a lot of issues with the bus stops in terms of wayfinding to even know where a bus stop is located on the street. Sometimes the sign might be on a, uh, a pole. Sometimes it might be on a tree or a utility yeah. pole. Um, they don't always line up with the exit of the bus, so there might be a gap between the curb so you can uh, get on and off safely. Um, so those are some issues they had exactly with what you've been mentioning with documents for the longest time, an inaccessible PDF schedule that was not <laughs> compatible with screen readers. Yeah. So the low floor has been good. There's been some a lot of complaints where they've been switching away from a more secure uh, tie-down system for wheelchairs and power chairs yeah. to a one-point kind of harness that's not as secure. Um, a lady, actually, who had left the federal, um, I was chatting with her at the federal accessibility consultation, uh, she was refused service on a bus when she left that night, was left out in the cold. Here because, in Halifax? Yes, because they expected her to have her own straps and tie-downs with her. And when she said, I think you're supposed to have those, um, they refused her service. And uh, she Yeah, I, I don't know anything about this issue, but mm-hmm. I know that when I've traveled in Europe, um, it's everything seems so much easier there for people using wheelchairs. Um, I, you know, and I don't know if they're just less secure there or, or if we're making it more complicated here or, or what's going on. But, well, so it's, it just... Sounds more or less like a a mixed bag, but we're making some progress. I definitely think the appetite is there more so than there had been and the awareness. Um, People are much more vocal about voicing their concerns and um, trying to get things done. Often it is on the sort of individual 
level, just going out as we've seen with, you know, Paul Vino and just making changes in your neighborhood and not waiting on the official bodies to do so. But um, hopefully everything, I think it's all with the, especially with the provincial legislation, I think it's all with the people that they put onto the accessibility directorate and then the standards committees. And if there's a conflict of interest, um, how much weight they put on the economic impact assessments versus the need to honor people's uh, human rights, um, that all remains to be seen. But um, I would expect this will probably be going through early in the new year. And uh, then they'll be making the changes to the Disabled Persons Commission, assigning an executive director to the Accessibility Directorate, uh, forming the Accessibility Advisory Committee. Uh, with that, half the members need to be persons with disabilities. Um, so hopefully they'll get a, a broad representation and not, I mean, everybody has, um, you know, the barriers that they're most urgently concerned with. Um, and often where limited resources are available, you know, it's an unfortunate situation where sometimes, you know, the different organizations are kind of pitted against each other for limited resources and uh, you know people would speak up at the federal consultation and really be okay first priority needs to be mental health Uh, we need to fight the stigma we need to eliminate those sorts of barriers faced by people looking for employment Um, whereas other people are more concerned with um, you know the government websites being accessible having access to their banking um, because there are barriers if due to hearing loss, vision loss, what have you. So, um, you know, all of that needs to be taken into account at all levels. So from our Municipal Accessibility Advisory Committee, I see a really good representation. And there are people that, you know, have a lot of expertise and knowledge in mobility, in, uh, you know, the experience of wheelchair users and the experience of people who are blind or low vision navigating around the city. I see less in the local level um, people who are deaf and hard of hearing participating in that process. So that would uh-huh. be great to see that change. And um, But at a lot of these, they're getting better about making sure there are ASL interpreters live, that there is the CART system, which is a live transcription. So beside the speakers, you will have a running transcription of the conversation. So that's all improving and yeah. hopefully... So that at the Human Rights Commission Awards ceremony last week, the uh, the... The scrolling words are exactly what was uh, – it's a heck of a technology, eh? but anyway. Yeah, I've been curious about that. One thing that I thought was very odd was at the national um, consultation, the French, even though it was being translated live from English to French, the French was far more accurate than the English transcription. <laughs> Every time a name would be missing, something would be wrong, I would look at the French screen and it would be right. So whoever was running it, I feel like it's partially automated yeah. and then a little bit of uh, operator input yeah. to correct things on the fly. Let's, but the let, French was better. Let's leave it there. Hey, thanks, thanks for coming in. Thank you. We'll talk to you in a couple of years and see where all this stuff <laughs> ends up. I've been speaking with Ryan Delahanty, who is an assignment editor for Accessible Media Incorporated. And uh, we'll come back right after this. That's a wrap for this week's Examiner Radio, the weekly podcast and radio show produced by the Halifax Examiner. I'm Tim Bousquet. And I'm Russell Gregg. As always, we'd love to know what you think. If you have comments on what you've heard or story suggestions for future episodes, please send us an email to podcast at halifaxexaminer.ca. Until next week, your phrase is, because the convention center isn't open. <laughs>